the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I don't know about you, but after uh, last week's message, I've been uh, spending this past week just walking around doing my daily life, even in my full-time ministry, and trying to make sure that I was performing and serving in a way that sought eternal reward rather than earthly reward, and I hope and pray that has been the case with you as well. We have been studying through the epistle of 1 Corinthians, and in our study of 1 Corinthians, we've come across two major themes. First is the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul spoke about this in length. The gospel is the wisdom of God, and all that it encompasses, not just the meat of the message, the foundation of the Christian life, but also the method by which we announce it, the method by which we deliver and proclaim this message, how Paul planted churches, how he evangelized both in, uh, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And so we saw the wisdom of God. The second major theme that we have seen, we came across just a couple weeks ago, and that was the building of God. The church, the local church, remember, uh, you have to be reminded, and as you read through this, that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a specific church, and so he's addressing that local church in Corinth as a whole, and of course, the lessons apply to all local churches throughout history and all over the world. So, the wisdom of God and the building of God or the construction of God, which is the local church. There's nothing new about these two themes, that of the wisdom of God and building upon that wisdom. In fact, by way of example, those two themes actually intersect back in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24, by way of example, verses 3 and 4 say this, "'By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And you know that the Proverbs speak much of the wisdom of God and that being uh, the beginning of worship, uh, the, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom rather, and it talks about wisdom versus foolishness. And this proverb, of course, can apply both to a physical building as well as a spiritual one. But nonetheless, we see the two themes. Speaking of Proverbs and intersections, There's probably no better physical example of these two themes than the temple. The temple of God that God had the writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, build. King Solomon's temple was ordained by God Himself as the place where His people would worship, but also as the place where God's presence would be revealed so that His people could worship. You remember famous King David desired to build this house for the Lord, and he said, no, this is not for you. It is for your son, Solomon. And we see uh, the process of that building of that ancient temple, which no longer stands today, in 1 Kings chapters 6, 7, and 8. 
That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians some 400 years later. But a second temple was built in its place, which we can read about in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. That temple lasted longer and was later known as the Temple of Herod, only because later on the Herod expanded in the construction of that building in the first century. But it too was destroyed in fulfillment of Christ's prophecy, as we saw in the Q&A a few weeks ago. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. There is no temple, physical temple, today. There is one wall remaining that is very famous. If you've ever visited Israel on vacation, you know that's one of the uh, top tourist destinations for Christians and is one of the top spiritual destinations for the Jews as you see people literally wailing there uh, as they hope for the rebuilding of the temple. But if the intersectionality of God's wisdom and building upon that foundation of God's wisdom is found most prominently in the temple, and the temple twice has been destroyed and has not been rebuilt the third time, how does God display His wisdom in that building? Well, He does so in what was the goal all along, even in the building of Solomon's temple. He does that in displaying his wisdom uh, in a building on the foundation of the gospel in what was the ultimate goal all along and will last until Christ comes again, and that is the temple, but not the physical temple, the spiritual temple, the church, all true churches. Unlike the previous two temples, the church is not a physical structure. It is a people, but no less holy and no less inhabited by God Himself, which is why we are referred to as Christians and as the local church as the temple of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we will see this very teaching. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17. And if you are joining us, whether live this morning, or I shouldn't say live, in person this morning or uh, through the live stream, you know, uh, or you may not know, that we have been studying 1 Corinthians verse by verse, if not word by word. That is uh, what we do here at Grace Church of the Bay Area, simply Uh, because we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and if someone as important as God has spoken to us, and only through His Word, we better get it right. And what better way to get it right to go slowly and to dig deep word by word, especially when we're looking at a Bible that is translated from two ancient languages that are now dead. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 say this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This morning I want to give you four attributes of the church as the temple of God. Four attributes of the church as the temple of God. And what we see in these four attributes are not only wonderful truths that keep us as believers focused on God in praise and thanksgiving for what He has done in and through us, for us, but as we will see, these four attributes also serve as a warning. 
as a warning to those who would seek to tear down or harm the church, as a warning to those who are unbelievers that would come and spread false doctrine or even worldly wisdom. We could say that our proposition for the morning is four attributes of the building of God that serve as an encouragement to those who love Him and as a warning to those who don't. Well, let's move along and see the first attribute of the church as a temple of God. The first is that we are a sanctuary. We are a sanctuary. Look at the first part of verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Now, it doesn't say the temple. We are a temple because we know that this applies to all local churches in Paul's day and forevermore going forward in history. Though it is true that every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and Paul will say that later in 1 Corinthians, that's not what he's saying here. What he is speaking of here is the local church as a collective unit. So for us this morning, Grace Church of the Bay Area. Keep in mind that the church is made up of individual believers, and so both ideas work together. Now, there are two words in the Greek that are translated in the English as the word temple. One refers to the entirety of the temple grounds. Okay, so you know that the temple was very large. It was a very large structure. It was pretty amazing considering how they built it without modern machinery. So it's all of it, the courts and the structures, the entrance, the trees out front. That would be the temple. There's another word in the Greek that refers specifically to one room inside the temple, which was the holy place or the holy of holies. This was the inner sanctum where God would be, and it was restricted for any to enter except for the one person, the high priest, and even then he was only allowed to enter once a year, and that entrance would be preceded by many special washings and rituals. This room was also blocked by a veil or a curtain that kept others out to the degree that you couldn't even pass by and look in even accidentally. And there's a reason for this. Because God said that He would be present in the Holy of Holies and meet with the high priest once a year. And we know that the limitations of entering there along with the barrier of the veil was so that people wouldn't die in seeing God. This was a reminder of how man was to reverently and carefully approach the awesomeness of God. Even when Moses was speaking with God up on the mountain, remember where he received the Ten Commandments, the law for God's people, the Jews? God said, I will show myself to you, but for your own safety, I will only show you my back as I pass by. And even then, because of that brief physical seeing of God's back, Moses' face shone to the point that it was bright in the light of day and visible in that way to the other Jews. Well, back to this word. The word that Paul uses here 
in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when speaking of the church as a temple of God is the word that refers specifically to the Holy of Holies. It speaks of the place where God was. Now, among the Corinthian believers that Paul is writing to, there were many who were not Jews. And so they may not be as familiar with what the Holy of Holies would be, what this inner sanctuary would be. But they would still be familiar with the temples of pagan gods and goddesses all over Corinth, many of which would still have this inner sanctum where only the great high priest or priestess of that false religion could enter. So, this word that Paul uses would carry great significance whether people were converted from Judaism or converted from paganism. Now, speaking of that temple, the actual temple, uh, the second temple that existed when Christ was on earth, you remember that upon the death of Christ, that veil was torn in two. And you, you read about that. The veil was torn in two. And you've got to keep in mind what an incredible, miraculous uh, thing this was to just kind of tear on its own. Now, of course, there are uh, atheists and there are people who don't believe uh, in Jesus as the Messiah, even Jews who have tried to explain away uh, why that veil would have torn, that maybe one of the, the rods holding it up fell and it tore. Uh, but historians and archaeologists have told us that the veil was so thick that to tear this thing would have been near impossible or very difficult by human hands. Why did it tear in two upon the death of Jesus Christ? Because God was telling us that any person could now access God directly because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And the principle, that principle, is now furthered by Paul in saying that not only can any believer come to God in the Holy of Holies, but any believer now is the Holy of Holies. That's a huge distinction. In other words, you don't need someone to approach the presence of God for you. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a small group leader. You don't need to do some sort of ritual. You don't need to pray some, some prayer. You, if you are a true Christian, don't even need to confess all your sins before you can approach God. In fact, it is the approaching of God directly is the only way that your sins can be forgiven and that you can confess them. But not only is God not saying that is necessary, that someone else is necessary to approach God directly in prayer or worship, He is saying God has approached you as it is in you. You are the Holy of Holies. He's not just saying the veil has removed so you can now all approach the Holy of Holies. You are the Holy of Holies. You are the sanctuary of God, which is that word temple. Now this word, when he says temple, that you are a temple of God, it suggests various manifestations of God and his relationship with man. So when you hear that you are the temple of God, you think of things like light, purity, presence, communication, worship, service. This emphasizes the fact that we as Christians are set apart for Him. This is not the veil has been torn in two and now all of mankind ever from that day forward 
is now the Holy of Holies. No, it is those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who are part of the universal church, the body of Christ, and of course thus is thus plugged into a local church, whatever and wherever that may be. Now, the picture and understanding of what it means to be the temple of God is made full or fuller in the next attribute of the church as a temple of God. And number two is we have the Spirit. We have the Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit. Look at the second part of verse 16. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you not know that you are a holy temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, Naturally, these two truths go hand in hand. They're not distinct truths that don't work together. Uh, For the sake of this morning, I have taken a sentence and I have cracked it in half, but it is one full sentence, is one full continuous thought. This makes sense because you are the temple of God. And naturally, as the sanctuary of God, the Spirit of God dwells in us, the church. Whether or not you recognize it, this is a huge help. And what I mean by this is, is this, that we often know, because our theology is correct, that the Holy Spirit indwells us as individuals, but as, also as a church. But so what? That's wonderful, great, that's part of salvation. But what does that mean practically? It is a huge help. And a lot of the help, I would imagine, that the Holy Spirit does in your life because He resides in you are things that He does that you don't even recognize. A few days ago on Thursday in our men's group, we discussed the discipline of prayer. And in that discussion, we referred to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, which, is address, which addresses the Holy Spirit's helping believers with our prayers, even interceding for us. You can almost picture our prayers leaving our lips and going up to heaven. It's not actually how it works, but if you imagine it, as a picture going up into heaven, the Holy Spirit takes control of it. And it says in that verse, because of our weaknesses, because you don't know how to properly pray without selfish motives. Your worship of God in your prayer is stained with sin and selfishness. And He knows that you're just getting to, yes, 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 you're great, you're wonderful. By the way, gimme, gimme, gimme. And so the Holy Spirit helps us, and that's just one way, helps us in our weaknesses, tells us what to pray, convicts us of what to pray, and then even takes our prayers and intercedes at the throne of God the Father on our behalf. And by the way, speaking of those who would say you need someone to intercede for you, a priest or a holy man or a guru or whatever it may be, You don't need another human being because we have the Holy Spirit. He does that for us. Maybe your thought is right. My words are wicked. I am a sinner. How can God the Father who is holy and separate listen to these words? And here's why, because the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. And you take that into just our lives in general outside of just the discipline of prayer. And this is what he's talking about. Yes, He helps us to know how to pray, what to pray for, intercedes on our behalf, but everything you do is empowered and helped by the Holy Spirit in a biblical way. Right? We want to be careful we don't take this too far and start attributing to the Holy Spirit things that God never says that He does. 
And in the same way, His indwelling of us as a church brings about His aid, His help in our worship. He controls it. He guides it. Which, by the way, even as a pastor, I would prefer over human control any day. This also goes back to the need to follow God's wisdom and God's methodology rather than the methodology of man or the world. Among the many avenues and means of worship that believers have at their disposal, the supremacy of the local church is very clear. The Bible doesn't tell you to be part of a local church. It is so clear that it assumes you are. Everything, everything in the New Testament revolves around the local church. Even commands to certain roles that may not play out in the church, such as slave and master or boss and employee. Okay? Everything that we are told revolves around the local church. Not Christian parachurch organizations, not missionaries, not conferences, not even the individual believer distinct from the local church who's not plugged into one. It is from the local church that the New Testament assumes and instructs all service to flow. It is the center and zenith of all worship and service and Christian being. If you are joining us online and you have been a Christian for a while and you're jumping from church to church and you have never truly plugged into the local church and you say, I don't need one because I'm still serving, I would assert to you this morning that you are serving unbiblically because we are told that within the Christian service, you are to be under the authority of a local church with its pastors and elders. You are to have your service flow through the local church. No, you are not just to pray for people in your church, but it starts there. No, you are not just to serve people in your local church, but it starts there. It all starts with the local church. It is home base. It is the sending agency. It is where you go back to get refreshed, get more supplies, get more spending money, as it were. You always have to go back, and then you go out into the world and evangelize. And then you go out in the world and serve, but the core, the center, is the local church. Now, there's a danger in both ways. There are people who don't know anybody or serve anybody or pray for anybody or spend money anywhere else except the local church. That's wrong too. People outside your church need service. They need prayer. They need evangelism. But there are people who do the opposite. They don't serve or pray for or help anyone in the local church, possibly because they don't have a local church or because they somehow twist the Scripture so much that they think they are too godly for the local church, which is the opposite of godliness. Well, the structure, pastors, elders, deacons, and servants, and lay people, all within the context of the local church in the New Testament. In addition to that powerful and underlying theme throughout the New Testament, we have this golden nugget that the Holy Spirit dwells in the local church. And I think it is fitting that though, as I mentioned earlier, he will address the Holy Spirit in every believer, he starts here 
in addressing the major issues, which he knows is a heart issue. It flows out into a church issue, but it's a heart issue in the Corinthians. He starts with the local church. The local church is the holy of holies. Now, taking a step back, speaking of the context, let's look at what he's doing here in regards to the Corinthian church. Again, taken as a full sentence, verse 16 is a rhetorical question. Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The phrase, do you not know, is a literary device that Paul uses some ten times in this epistle alone. And it's a rhetorical question phrased in the negative. Do you not know? But the rhetorical question demands a positive answer. That's why it's rhetorical. He's not really answering or asking for an answer. He knows that they know the answer is a resounding yes. Do you not know? Yes, we know. Yes, we know. But there's more. The grammar that Paul uses here shows an accusatory tone. This is loving, yes, but it's not pleasant. Gracious, yes, but it's not friendly. This is an accusatory tone. It has an intensity to it. It's not like, hey, do you not know? It's surely you know this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.